Welcome to Season 2, Episode 28 of Beyond the Zero. I'm your host, Ben. Joining me today is Daniel Davis-Wood. Daniel is a writer, and he's the chief editor and founder of Splice Publishing. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Thanks. You are based in Scotland. Your wife has family here in Melbourne, and you grew up in northern New South Wales. Can you tell us a bit about how you ended up on the border of Scotland and England? Well, uh, it's a very long story, but I think the short version goes that, uh, let's see, um, the Venn diagram of my personality and interests and the place I grew up uh, is non-overlapping. I was, uh, from a very young age, very keen to get out of Australia, which I did when I was 19. I moved to America first, and then uh, I moved to Britain, to Scotland, and then uh, for basically the purposes of going on to further study, at a later point, I moved back to Australia for a few years to do a PhD. That's where I met my wife. And then when that was finished, we moved abroad again um, to Switzerland together. And um, then following the birth of our daughter, she has some very particular special needs. So in search of support um, for those, we went to back to Britain, first to Birmingham. And then after the first COVID lockdown, because things weren't working for us in Birmingham on a personal level, we uh, called it quits and ended up back in Scotland for me and in Scotland for her for the first time. Wow. Okay. That's pretty massive. And that's the short one. <laughs> <laughs> Briefly, we all know Birmingham is a bit of a shithole. Uh, how was your time there? Uh, it, it was it was very rough. I mean, for the you know for the purposes of of the people listening to this podcast, Birmingham in England. Um, it's a really, it's a very large city. There's a couple of million people who live there and within the broader area around it, there's probably five or six million people. But, you know, for, for the things that we're interested in, we look for like infrastructure. We want, you know, writers, support groups or, or, or you know, um, uh, independent bookstores, things that run events. And they, they literally don't exist in Birmingham. Um, Birmingham has a single bookstore in the centre. It's a Waterstones. It's very corporate. There's... There's not the sort of independent um, literary culture really anywhere in that area um, that that would that you know that would allow um, anything beyond the mainstream to sort of flourish or come to the attention of the people of of the West Midlands. So uh, in that respect, in many respects, Birmingham was very tough. But uh, in that respect, particularly because I felt um, it, it felt it felt a bit like a desert. Really, you know, it was quite arid to be a writer in Birmingham. To use a really crap metaphor, um, Birmingham as a desert, like really grew a flower and that was Splice. Can you tell <laughs> us how Splice emerged from the shithole of Birmingham? <laughs> well, um, I like that metaphor actually. <laughs> uh, um, so um, I think people generally are aware that in the last 
let's say seven or eight years, there's there's been a sort of a wave of small press publishing that has that has washed through the UK with publishers like Fitzcarraldo and, and other stories and Influx Press and a bunch of others who are producing some really interesting and challenging and innovative books. Um, but that's the second wave of small press publishing in the UK. And the first wave was sort of around the late 90s into the early 2000s, mid 2000s. And um, that wave was kind of kickstarted by a small press in Birmingham called Tyndall Street Press. Um, so at that stage, you know, things were looking very much up for Birmingham and its prospects. And if you go there today and you do connect with like writing West Midlands and the people who, who run those sorts of very small um, initiatives that are trying to do something for literature in Birmingham, they remember Tyndall Street as kind of, you know, the glory days of, of small publishing um, in that area. And so when the second wave of small presses sort of came about, there was a bit of a uh, a lot of people were kind of unsettled that that Birmingham had nothing to show for it. And at the time I was in Birmingham and I was trying to, I was interested in doing something like setting up a small press. And so in the end, um, uh, you know, by luck, really, I connected with a few people that ended up um, producing a, a, a very small pool of money um, for someone who would want to take on this project of establishing a Birmingham-based small press and trying to put Birmingham on the map um, nationally within the UK for producing, you know, some sort of small press literature that should, that could get attention for the city and its culture and maybe, you know, ignite something more exciting around there. Um, and so I ended up taking that on and basically putting my hand up and saying, look, I'll, I'll do as much legwork as I can um, with money for the writers, but it's voluntary from my side of things. Um, and the brief that it had to be for uh, the good of writers in the West Midlands, writers in the Birmingham, Birmingham and the surrounding area. And so I, I agreed to that and found it an immense challenge um, because, uh, well, for, for a variety of reasons, but the main one being that actually a lot of writers in the West Midlands weren't particularly interested in writing literary fiction at all. Um, it was it was just really really hard to find writers who would say this is the kind of thing that I like to read and this is the kind of thing that I like to write if it's if it was literary or unusual in any way it's a much more of a I think probably a genre fiction kind of place if anything for the writers um, that are there so uh, long story short I ended up realizing that it was probably easier to attract attention for the press. Um, in a different way, in a way that wasn't actually connected to local writers, and then try to raise the profile of the press that way and maybe attract local writers afterwards. So I, I ended up publishing books by writers in the United States, uh, further afield in England, in Manchester, um, in London, and then in Australia as well, the first of which was Hang In When He Is Not There by Nicholas John Turner. Um, and those first three or four books really did attract a little bit of attention in the UK. Hang Him was shortlisted, uh, longlisted for the Republic of Consciousness Prize and um, Michael Conley's Flair and Falter was longlisted for a National Short Story Award and things like that. Um, and so I, I kind of went down that path and still, even despite having raised the profile, found it a real challenge to find locally based writers who were producing unusual literary fiction. So in the end, um, 
I guess you could kind of say I went rogue a little bit. Uh, I did what I was not really supposed to do originally um, and have published very few West Midlands-based writers, but a lot of other interesting writers and used the money for those purposes. And so um, I had it in the agreement that I could take the press with me when the money that originally seeded it was gone and that happened when I moved to Scotland. So I run it um, essentially independently now. Um, still to my mind with the remit, with more of a remit, a remit to, to just publish unconventional fiction wherever I can find it, regardless of who the writers are or where they're coming from. Well, now that the press is a couple of years old, in my opinion, it's one of the most interesting publishing houses around. You publish books like The Logos, uh, Square Wave by Marcus Silver as well, um, Babel from Gabriel Blackwell, short stories by Greg Gerke, his essay collection. That's just to name a few, obviously Nicholas John Turner as well. Do you want to take us on a bit of a like tour of your catalogue? Like, Tell us about some of the things you're really excited about. I guess I would say um, my interests are quite varied as a reader and as an editor. And so the, uh, the books in the back catalogue are kind of, broken down into like groupings, almost thematic groupings, different different styles of writing. So the first grouping is, is um, was, was focusing on sort of absurdist or fabulous fiction, um, things that were, you know, taking just wildly out there subjects and also doing um, sort of bizarre things with them stylistically. Um, Nicholas John Turner's Hang Him is, is in that grouping. The second grouping was more, um, kind of anchored in the real world, but in a, in a kind of wry or um, kind of critical way, I guess, like, like um, Greg Gerke's collection, especially The Bad Things is in there, and um, a short story collection by a writer named Deirdre Shanahan, which is very sort of razor sharp, um, like stylistically very sharp realism, um, and Blackwell's uh, Babel as well, which is, uh, you know, for all its strange qualities, there's a lot of Lovecrafty and stuff in there and there's science fiction in there, but um, a lot of it is anchored in relationships between parents and children and sort of very um, domestic things that are dealt with in, in kind of unusual ways. And then the third section, the, the third grouping was more sort of, I guess you would say, contemplative or meditative fiction. Um, a bit of psychogeography from Anna McDonald and from Peter Holm Jensen. And then lately um, it has been uh, sort of focusing on things that are, well, like the logos, right? That are, that are kind of big and ambitious and sort of start small and just go, you know, almost interstellar, right? Like Waypoints by Adam Alston. It starts with just this tiny, tiny anecdote from something that happened in a field in Melbourne and goes into, you know, transhumanism and things like that. And the Logos um, starts with a guy in an apartment building who is just looking at the, you know, tiniest brush strokes of, of a piece of art that he's making. And when you find out what he's drawing and why he's doing it and what this, you know, it just kind of explodes from there. Um, so that's the thinking behind that that latest grouping. So I guess, you know, on the whole, I, I, the words that I just keep coming back to to describe it are, are uh, unconventional and adventurous uh, and ambitious, you know, writers who are really just saying whatever the mainstream is, whatever sort of 
people might expect from a short story today or from you know, a novel today. I'm just, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do something else. And what that something else is, I may not know when I start the project, but I'm not going to do X, Y, and Z that might um, sort of satisfy many people's expectations. So in a way, I guess, like, I like fiction that, um, that you know, that takes, that, that really takes a risk, right? That takes a risk of, um, coming onto the page with the author knowing that probably most people who encounter it are not going to respond to it and then just going hell for leather anyway. Hmm. You've also got a classic collection and it includes one of my favourite books, Against Nature by J.K. Huesmans. Are there some other titles in that series that you're looking forward to producing? Uh, yeah, I mean, the classic selection is really sort of like a... Um, a group of books where if you read these, then you will, if you read them and you take them all together, then um, you will understand what Splice is all about, right? It's like, if you want to submit to Splice, read these books first. And if your book is kind of like on the same wavelength, then, you know, you're in. Um, so yeah, Hoisman's is in there. Um, Michael Kohlhaus is coming up um, by Heinrich von Kleist. Also a book called Journal of a Disappointed Man by uh, a guy named WNP Barbellion. Have you ever heard of no. Barbellion? Uh, so it's uh, Journal of a Disappointed Man is really one of my favorites. If you like Against Nature, you'll probably like that too. It's uh, exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> a guy who is like, it's his journal. He's kind of a hypochondriac. Uh, he's like, yeah, he's, a, he's also an incredible depressive and kind of one of those like, um, he, he has a disposition towards excess in his misery. Let's put it that way. I guess a little bit of a proto Thomas Bernhard, but without the run on style is kind of his, uh, his character. Um, and then uh, what's also in there is a, is a really weird book called uh, A Journey Around My Room by Xavier de Meister, who it is a true story about a guy who was, so he's, uh, he was sentenced to, um, house arrest he was put under house arrest for his involvement in a duel um and what he realized was that during his house arrest he he was at he, he had no shortage of interesting places to visit and fascinating things to see if he would just walk across his room and so it's like a, it's literally just a catalog of what a guy sees when he walks across one room told as if he is traveling across a, a vast continent it's kind of like a um, he has this obsession with just minute details and and of, of things around him that, you know, when he fixates on one and, and then sort of tries to magnify it, it just becomes kind of hilarious and ridiculous and also uh, kind of moving. Excellent. Okay. I'm putting both of those two last things on my list. Definitely reading them. Do it. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is the economics of small press publishing. I know that most people listening to this are huge supporters of small press. We all want to access books that are, like you said, that are really interesting, pushing boundaries. Could you tell us a bit about the difficulties and successes of a small press and how we as book buyers uh, can best support small press? Well, the first one, uh, the last one, sorry, is easy to answer, and that is by directly from the small press. Um, it, it's, uh, it's much more remunerative for both the press and the author if you go straight through them and cut out places like Amazon uh, and Book Depository. Um, but aside from that, look, it really is, 
I think it would be easier for people to understand it if um, perhaps if small press publishers and independent publishers made more efforts to clarify what actually counts as success and kind of what the norm is for a book that is not just not published by one of the big five, right? So, you know, you kind of have the big five publishers in the UK. This is, I'm talking about, you have well, everywhere, but I'll talk UK specific. You have the big five publishers. Then you have sort of an intermediate band of publishers like Grantar um, and Canongate um, that are sort of underneath them. They're not big five and they do a lot of uh, adventurous stuff but they're independent, they have a good financial base um, and they subsidize a lot of their literary publishing with very successful crime novels and things like that. And then you have small press publishers sort of underneath them, which are, um, you know, their finances are a bit more precarious and that includes Splice, but it includes um, Dead Ink, Dodo Ink, Influx and, and, and those sorts of presses. Now, um, a lot of people, I think, who look at it from the outside are surprised when I tell them things like uh, there was a book published by Canongate recently within the last, I guess, 18 months by a writer who already had uh, quite a well-established profile, had been nominated for um, some major awards, and this book itself was um, on the long list and short list of some national awards in the UK. And this writer with this independent press um, received an advance of £2,000 and didn't earn out with it. Um, so if you take that as kind of probably what I would characterise as a pretty good deal for somebody who is writing non-marketable fiction, literary fiction, um, that's sort of what you would expect from those intermediate presses. Now, when you're talking about smaller presses than that, the finances, of course, become, you know, uh, commensurably smaller. So in the case of Splice, um, we have a different deal to what some other small presses in the UK have, where we offer um, authors an acquisition fee. So it's not an advance. It's a flat fee that they get no matter what happens. Um, and then the royalties for authors kick in with the sale of the very first copy. So we give them a few hundred pounds. They don't have to do anything to earn that back, right? Then they start getting more pounds from the sale of copy number one. And that's the same sort of arrangement as some other small presses like CB editions in the UK. Um, and then there are others that don't offer money upfront at all, but only royalties beginning with the sale of the first copy. So usually a standard 10% or 15% royalties. And then there are others that would offer a larger advance, but the author would be unlikely ever to earn that out. So it's more or less a flat fee. And the publisher basically takes whatever the book generates in bookstores. So, I mean, that's how it works between publishers and authors. And in terms of um, like production, so the costs that you face as a publisher are whatever you're paying the author up front, plus printing, which is going way up right now, um, plus warehousing and distribution. And um, bookstores will take a slice of the sale price of a book as well. So to break it down, for example, if I have a book that gets sold at £9.99 in a bookstore, 
The bookstore is going to take about 50% of that, which leaves £4.50 to come back to the press, um, which is what the press has to use to pay for the actual production of the book, which costs about £2, which leaves the press after everything with about £2.50, maybe £2 after taxes and so on, to give to the author in whatever arrangement they've got. For Splice, that's 50-50. So Splice authors usually walk away with about a pound for every book that's sold in a bookshop. If it goes straight through the press, they walk away with about £2.50 because we sell for the same price, but we don't have to pay 50% to a bookshop. Um, those are kind of the basics of the economic arrangements. Does that kind of answer what you're getting at? It does, but it doesn't tell me. And this is what I guess this is my concern about it. Like it doesn't seem like an economically feasible model for writers or, you know, or the people publishing books. So I guess what I want to know is how, how does this become something that's feasible for, for everybody involved? There are different ways that it can become feasible. So uh, I guess, first of all, most presses that are sustained over any length of time in the UK are subsidised by the government through, in England, it's through the Arts Council of England. In Scotland, it's through Creative Scotland. Um, so things like uh, Dead Ink, which was the first press to publish uh, the unauthorised biography of Ezra Mars, for example, receive uh, a few tens of thousands of pounds in, in um, funding from ACE which is over a number of years, right? So it's still a very, very small amount of money considering that there are X number of people behind the press and they have so many things to pay. Um, others did it in a different way. So, for example, And Other Stories also received ACE funding, but they used that to jump to a, a subscription model or rather to build out a subscription model that already existed so that they can underwrite their upfront costs well, because, because they have subscribers and their economics are a bit more stable. And it's the same with Fitzcarraldo. Um, they have a subscription offer as well. Mm. Um, mostly though, you know, in any honest assessment, it's not a way to make a living for writers um, and presses are lucky, lucky if they break even. Um, is, that's basically the, the sort of takeaway. And some presses that haven't received funding are sort of um, have kind of grouped together to try and get sort of group funding so they can still get something to cover their basic costs by sort of, uh, I guess, crowdfunding. I guess you would call it crowdfunding with government assistance. Um, but those sorts of things, and for Splice included, really rely on timing, luck, and sort of make you answerable to um, different criteria based on whichever region you're in that you may have to deal with or may not deal with. Hmm. I think that this kind of leads into my question about Mark De Silva's The Logos, because I think that's one of the most ambitious novels that I've seen published in a very long time. And I don't know if other presses would have taken it up, you know, without you guys doing it, but... Mm -hmm. I think, and you've told me about the challenges in publishing this particular work, but I guess built into that, like how does a work like that come out and how do you make sure that that work gets to see the light of day? Well, uh, I'll say first of all that you've read the Logos. I think anyone who reads the Logos, anyone who gets within 10 pages of the Logos will know immediately 
that it is a work of considerable merit on its own terms. Um, that's how my interest was piqued first of all. It wasn't by a summary. I had read Square Wave, but I don't necessarily have a commitment to you know, publishing new books by authors I admire. It's the book on its own terms. And so I picked up the manuscript when Mark sent it to me and it, it, it had the X factor, I guess. It was doing all the things that I would wait for manuscripts to do, you know. Um, so I kind of immediately thought this is something that I would be inclined to publish, read the book all the way to the end just to be sure. Of course, it confirmed my initial um, response to it. And I thought, yes, this is, this is something that I would want to publish. But of course, the economics were going to be difficult. And I knew that straight away. And I did some calculations straight away. And in my initial response to Mark, I took the economic case to him and I said, this is essentially, it's almost an unprofitable book from, from a purely economic perspective within the UK, right? The number of pages that it would require would, uh, it, it puts the, the cost price per unit at about £12. And you have a, a a price point ceiling of about 17 or 18 pounds because otherwise then you compete with brand new hardbacks which makes it unlikely that people in bookstores are going to pick it up which then gives you a very slim five pounds margin from which to take royalties and and all those other sorts of things and so I wanted to make sure that Mark was aware of that um, and they, he went into it with eyes open and that we were going into it with eyes open. But at the end of the day, what it really came down to was, you know, in committing to the book was, what does the press exist for if it doesn't exist to produce books like that? Uh, I think you're right. I think it's because, partly because of the material in the book, which is very challenging, partly because of um, what I think sort of the, the discourse, the the, the sort of public discourse that the book could fall into. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a politically correct book in a way. I don't really like using any of those terms, but it, it's not easily assimilated into currents within the discourse, right? It really challenges kind of wherever you stand, it's going to challenge you. So for those reasons, as well as the economic reasons, I, I didn't see what would make a, a larger publisher take it on, but I don't know how they would feel about it but I kind of it, it came to me and I thought yeah it's the kind of thing that looks like it would struggle to get into big five for those reasons and probably independent publishers for the economic reasons more than anything would I be willing to kind of almost make no money on it and still try to get it to however many hundreds, hopefully thousands of readers it has. Yes, that is that is what it's there for. That's what the classics range in Splice is there for as well, to generate something to subsidize books like the Logos. You know, and if it's not, um, yeah, when I started the press, you, you start it with dreams, of course, right? And one of the dreams I had was that a book like The Logos would come along at some point for me. It's kind of the manuscript that you're waiting for as a publisher with my taste. So when it comes, you, you, you just do what you have to do, even if it means taking a hit economically and in terms of you know my labor purely, like there's hours and hours and hours and hours of work in The Logos. Of course, it's it, it, that's that's because there's an impetus behind the entire initiative and and 
the logos is something that really satisfies that and resonates with it. So it was it was a no-brainer. I wanted to ask you, and I think you may have already answered this, but as a publisher, I assume that there's kind of a white whale book that you're out there for. But did Mark DeSilva's The Logos kind of, was he your white whale? Or do you think there's something else out there that, you know, you're hunting for? <laughs> uh, I mean, <laughs> I hope he's not the white whale because the white whale destroys the ship in the end. <laughs> but uh, um, I guess I would say, you know, I would actually say no. I, I think each book... Each book has its own challenges and satisfactions, and it's hard to it's hard to um, imagine that there's something out there that has the the sort of perfect ratio or the perfect alchemy of challenge, you know, and satisfaction, and they're sort of all balanced in a way. Like I think to things like uh, Greg Gerke's essay collection, "See What I See," in its first iteration, which was published by Splice, you know that that was also satisfying in a way that the Logos was satisfying, or, or sorry, in a different way, in that it didn't exist. It didn't exist in manuscript form. That was me being a fan of Greg Gerke and thinking I would I would publish a book of Greg Gerke essays no matter what. Also, economically, like it, did, it didn't really matter. I wanted to see that book in the world. You know, it was a, it was a good thing that I wanted to uh, sort of, uh, deliver up to to people who might be interested. So I wrote to Greg and I made this case to him and said, "Would you be interested in doing this?" And he was, thankfully. But then it was, you know, it was, I don't know, not a white whale. It was something that it didn't exist. We had to build it. You know, we had to put it together, kind of painstakingly figure out what goes in, what doesn't, what order does it go in, line by line, re-editing everything. And I guess at the stage that we published that, like that was the biggest book. That was. It's nearly 500 pages, 450 pages in the UK edition. Um, and it felt like, yeah, it, it felt a bit like a white whale, but now I, I look at it alongside the Logos and I couldn't tell you which one is the white whale and which one isn't. They're kind of different beasts. <laughs> okay. Um, I want to ask you, what have you got coming up for the press? And so the last title that we've got coming up this year is a collection of essays by Janice Grill. It's called Portals. Um, it is, uh, so it's an interesting one for us. Again, I, 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 it was coming from a place where I thought, mm, I, I would. I like the challenge of this. And also I like Janice Grill's essays. I've been reading her for a while. Um, and it, it, what she's dealing with is, in this book is kind of um, the connection between materiality, like actual physical, tangible objects and something like a spiritual dimension to the world, right? An intangible dimension. And she doesn't really see these two things as distinct, actually. She sees one as being accessible through the other. Um, and so to kind of augment the idea of the book, uh, we're going to do a limited run of sort of deluxe hard covers that have the some of the material properties that Janice discusses in relation to other books within the book. So people who order direct through the press will be able to get those hard covers um, through Amazon or elsewhere. I'm afraid they'll have to make do with the paperback, which doesn't quite have the same 
I don't know. It, it doesn't have the same dimensions as the hardback will. So we're, we're doing a double edition there, which is not something that has really happened before. Put me down for that, please. I'm going to go and order that. And hopefully after that, I can get back to some short stories as well. So there are some short story authors who are also um, in discussions, but none of that is finalized yet. And that would be for 2023-24. Okay. I wanted to ask you as well about ebooks because I know that I think you and me are both physical book people. I think we love having a book in our hands. And I think that, you know, it shows like the publication of the logos and, and you know, Janice Grill as well like the, your value that you put into the physical book itself. But in terms of eBooks, how do you feel about those? And obviously the economics of it are good for publishers, but how do you feel about them in general? As, as a publisher, I feel great. <laughs> I like that people like eBooks. I think we do put a bit of work into eBooks. So each of the Splice eBooks are sort of hard-coded uh, is, is kind of the term that I think I bandy about with my my designer and typesetter, um, meaning that uh, he he looks like he goes behind the scenes. He doesn't just use a WYSIWYG editor or whatever it is. He goes and makes sure that everything is in order and it's nicely produced. Um, the overheads are much lower. There is a, a number that is surprising to me of people who buy eBooks. I personally don't like them at all as a reader. Um, I guess before I got into it, I assumed that that was the way most people felt. But no, there's there's quite a contingent out there who are very happy with ebooks. Um, I don't know if that's to do with price or to do with physical convenience. In the case of a book like the Logos, like it's hard to hold a thousand pages. Um, I I find it nice, but <laughs> other people may not. Um, but you know, one of I th I think it's just well, one of the the most valuable or the most influential things that I've ever heard came from the Canadian novelist and essayist Douglas Glover, who I worked with very briefly and have um, learned a lot from as a writer and reader. And he said, when you are, when you're, when you're reading a book, like the first thing that you are, that you need to do if you are reading for structure and style is to actually know how big this is. Like, what is the size of this thing? What are its proportions? How is it broken down purely in terms of like number of pages? Where are the breaks? And where are, where is each break relative to all the other breaks? Like how many pieces it chopped into? How thin or thick is each one and so on? Um, and I guess that's a material thing in a way. For me, it's a question of, I, I think I think of books as like, as like, kind of time capsules, like each book, I can tell how much time it's going to take based on the number of pages, right? And I wanna know like how much does each sort of unit of the book, how much time is that gonna take up relative to all the other units? And that's a really part of the reading, really important part of the reading experience for me. So I think that that, I think it kind of rests on having like a physical object in my hand. You know, aside from the fact that it feels good, it's like feeling the time of the book. I can hold the time of it in my hand. And I don't know, I kind of rely on that. And you can't get it through ebooks at all, really. So I guess that's, I don't know, showing the difference between my own personal take and, and my take as a publisher. I, um, I feel like I should mention at this point that um, in terms of physical books, one of the key things that I love about them is the fact that you can pass them on to people. And tonight I'm reflecting on that because Michael Winkler's Grimish 
was uh, shortlisted for the Miles Franklin. And I realized that I don't have a copy anymore because I have given all my copies of this book to other people. And I keep buying copies of these books and giving them away. And you can't really do that with an ebook. I don't think you can do that with Grimish anymore either. I think, <laughs> I think, I think that supply is gone, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> I've got one and I think it's very justly long listed for the Miles Franklin and I hope it goes all the way. Uh, although that may make the copies you've given away worth a lot more than they were. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think they were signed as well. Damn. Nothing <laughs> went. Oh, well. Quite an investment you've yielded up there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Um, one more question about publishing, uh, but more for writers. What are the kind of things that you would give as advice for writers, like who are submitting books? I think I would say to writers, A, don't submit anything unless you know that what you're submitting is something that you have given everything you've got in you. Every, absolutely everything you've got in you goes into that one book. If it doesn't have that, don't bother. And B, you know in your heart of hearts, when you are lying awake in bed at night, you know whether that book has everything that you've got in you, everything that you are capable of. So if you submit it kind of hoping that you can pull the wool over someone's eyes, or if you submit it with the view that a lot of people I have received things from have, have this view, which is that it's not the best thing in the world, but it's good enough and it's as good as a lot of other stuff I've seen out there, that doesn't work, right? You know, you know in your heart of hearts when you are making that kind of bad faith case for yourself. You know, it's a... It, it's not about for a published for a press like Splice and a lot of small presses in the UK. We're not interested in marketability. We're not interested in where something sits in relation to other books in the market. We're not always interested in um, having a product that we can sell. What we're interested in is a piece of work that is innovative and true to itself on its own terms. That takes a lot of labor to produce, a lot of intellectual and creative labor because you have to get yourself kind of out of the market mindset and come up with something that escapes the prefabricated modes of thought and creativity that the market gives us. Um, you know whether you've done that when you are submitting something. And if you're unsure, if you can't say in full faith, yes, this is a work that is uh, unique and an authentic version of, um, is authentically the best thing that I can possibly produce at this stage as a writer. If you can't like fully back that statement when you're pressing the submit button, don't submit go back to it and keep going until you can say that. Great advice. Great advice. Um, with that, let's move on to your books. So in addition to being a, an amazing publisher, you've written two novellas, Blood and Bone and Unspeakable, and the brilliant novel At the End of the Solid World. 
Could you tell us, uh, tell us a bit more about your journey into writing? Uh, it's a very unexpected one. I started off, uh, I guess, in my late teens and early 20s, wanting to write science fiction and fantasy. Uh, and I did. And I wrote a lot of it. And I published a bunch of stuff under pen names. And um, probably enough stuff to fill like a book of short stories. Um, and I, every time I published something like that, even though it had been published, it, I walked away from it just feeling completely empty, like feeling no connection to what I had done. I was, yeah, I was writing stuff in bad faith. Like it wasn't the best I could do and it wasn't what I wanted to do. It was just what I could do and I thought it was good enough and it was good enough to get into different places, but it didn't feel worthwhile in the end. Um, so, you know, I wrote some stories like that and I wrote like, I just wanted to keep writing. So I wrote a bunch of book reviews, sometimes for online journals, sometimes for print journals. This is back in the early 2000s. Um, and wrote some novels that didn't go anywhere. Um, and every time, every time, I just had this incredible dissatisfaction with what I'd done, even when I thought it was the best I could do. Um, you know, I guess there was just this urge to write something I didn't know what and all I had to sort of guide me was that I was just I, I liked reading sci-fi fantasy then and so that's kind of what I did and it was like uh, I don't know in the end it was a bit like spinning spinning wheels you know um, and so I left it for a while and um, kind of tried to broaden what I was reading uh, and that was sort of at the height of like literary the literary bloggosphere and I guess I, re I really got into you know blogs by people like Stephen Mitchellmore and Dan Green um, and a guy called Wyatt Mason who used to write for Harper's Magazine he wrote a blog called Sentences and I think that was kind of like an important thing for me because I'd never really considered something like what he was doing on that blog which was he would just take a book and sometimes it was like a book that I knew well, like a sci-fi book. I remember he did a canticle for Leibovitz and things like that. And he took one sentence from the book and he would like write just an entire blog post on just the sentence, like treating the sentence itself as a work of art. And I just thought, oh, wow, that's really interesting. Like I'd never, I'd always, up until that point, I'd kind of always thought of sentences as just like a vehicle for a story. Like it wasn't a thing in its own right. It was there to like serve the story that I might've had in mind. Um, so he was doing that blog and then it wasn't long after he wrapped it up. I think that um, Gary L. Lutz published her essay, The Sentence is a Lonely Place. I don't know if you know that essay, probably. It's fucking brilliant. I've mentioned it like several times on the show, but yeah, it's one of the best essays out there. I, I think it's just incredible. And also the follow-up, the poetry of the paragraph. And reading those two off the back of White Mason, and, and like Mitchell Moore and Green and guys who are really talking about like where does writing come from and what is form for, what does it serve and how do they interact? It just really made me like pay attention to like words on a micro level and how they're sort of interacting and there's this sort of alchemy that goes on and you can, you know, if, you, if you're attentive to it and you're aware of it, you can, like, control the flow of energy through a sentence and on into the next. And I started 
I'd had kind of some material that I wanted to put into what would become Blood and Bone, but I just did not know how to write it. And, you know, had started four, five, six different drafts, none of which went anywhere because they all just seemed so like authoritative and so assured, like, like, like I was writing, like I knew what I was writing. In fact, I had no idea what I was writing, except that there was just this itch that needed scratching and I didn't know how to scratch. And, and so I went back to Lutz and Mason and just really slowed down a lot and went like sentence by sentence can I make each sentence of this book like do something? Like, can I can I make it flow or sound in a particular way? Um, and that's when things sort of clicked with me a little bit for the first time. And I looked at what I was writing and I thought, wow, this is, I don't know if it's good. I don't know if anyone's ever going to want it um, to like to publish, but it felt fulfilling in a way that nothing I'd done before felt fulfilling like it felt true and it was it was true because I think like it felt authentic I guess because I'd taken a step back and just was like there is like there is a greater there is something beyond me that is just sort of coming through now and I don't know what it is and I'm not even going to try to find out it's just like you, you know you just have to let yourself be possessed by it in a way and it will it will be you know I don't know, it will present questions that have no answer and that's okay. Like just sort of be content with not knowing everything was kind of where I got with Blood and Bone. Um, both in, in respect of like the subject, which is about, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, I mean, in a bookshop, it goes under historical fiction, but actually it's a book about like just never knowing, never being able to get into the mindset of somebody from an era other than our own. You know, it's about accumulating facts, but never accumulating a real understanding of of people from other other times. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was like that. That was both the subject and also like my way into the the style of the book was to kind of to to just say I will never know. I will, I won't know. All I can do is kind of feel that something is working or something is not. And it's like sensing a a, a presence or a a justness to what was on the page. And so I finished that book um, and I sent it into Seizure, which um, had started in Sydney under Alice Grundy and David Henley a few years earlier, maybe two or three years earlier. And they had received some funding for a novella competition. So that won the novella, Vivula Novella Prize in 2014 and it was published um, and then after that, I, I didn't really know if I would write anything else. I had like some ideas of what I might write and, you know, just some very basic stuff. Um, and then I mentioned Douglas Glover earlier. Douglas Glover had founded a, an online journal called Numero Sync magazine, which um, published some amazing writing and it's still online and everybody should read it if they have a spare moment it, it has just a vast archive of incredible stuff and I, so I put my hand up and volunteered with Numero Sync magazine and sent Douglas what became unspeakable and he gave me um, some feedback on that and it was published on Numero Sync and then he decided not to do Numero Sync anymore um, and that was when I 
started Splice and poached a few NumeroSync people to do that. And then um, at the same time, I was writing at the edge of the solid world. And I mean, that took a few years, but that story is a bit more straightforward. It just took a few years because <laughs> it was hard to write and off it went. I want to talk about At the End of the Solid World quickly because I think it's a really great novel because I think with some Australian novels, uh, they kind of get stuck in Australia. But in this novel, you start overseas. Um, it's quite a dramatic start. It's quite confronting in parts, but uh, it really does like stretch the legs of the book. Like I really think that, you know, your writing in this book uh, goes a long way. The narrative goes a long way. Um, but can you tell our listeners a bit more about that particular book? Thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear the phrase stretching the legs. Yeah, it's um, the book. Well, in summary, um, the book is, uh, th well, the book is about a, uh, an Australian couple who are married and they're living as I did in Switzerland. Um, they have a, a child who, who essentially dies at birth, dies after one day at birth. And it's about the, the, um, repercussions of that and ultimately the end of their marriage. I wanted to take uh, a certain kind of novel that I see a lot or a couple of different kinds of novels that I see a lot and kind of try to uh, blow them up really. <laughs> um, one is the realist, the novel of realist domesticity. You know, there are a lot of novels about marriages that don't work. There are a lot of novels about parents in, in difficulties with their children um and then later in the novel there are in my novel there are there are events that that connect to you know global events to war to you know terrorism and sort of contemporary issues and so the issues novel is another novel that I wanted to take on but I wanted to like um well first of all I guess kind of kind of keep it really mundane. So there's actually not a lot of action in at the end of the solid world, even though it's 500 pages long, it's literally like the beginning and then it takes place over a couple of days and it's people who are in their kitchens and they're like, by the end, they're just, they're not even exchanging words. They're just standing, you know, <laughs> sitting down and it's about what they think the other people are thinking and, and so on. So there's actually, you know, in terms of like, if you were to film it, it would be very, very grindingly slow. So I wanted a book where like nothing happened in that timeline, but a lot was going on elsewhere. And also one where it wasn't, it didn't have the pleasures of like the conventional novel of domesticity where you're wondering, will they break up? Will they not? Well, like it wasn't about that. That's not even, that's not what interests me at all. So it kind of like the entire story arc of the main characters is given away within the first 15 pages you know the ending by page 50 I think um and I also wanted like whatever issues the book was dealing with I wanted it to be kind of almost tangential to what the book is really trying to do because I don't I don't I don't like those books the kind of books that take up an issue like this one takes up the issue of refugees the treatment of refugees in Australia but there's nobody who's ever going to pick up at the edge of the solid world who doesn't already agree with whatever position the narrator is going to take right it just I just don't think it's out to convince anybody or to educate anybody like I did not want to do that so you're not going to learn anything about the treatment of refugees from it you're not going to come away persuaded that there's another way like it's satisfying kind of the preconceptions of its audience and the point of that was to kind of 
use these genres of, of domesticity and issues as like a Trojan horse for something else. Yeah. So that it, it looks like a contemporary realist novel kind of on the surface, but there's a lot more as, as you know, like when you get into the guts of it, it goes into like many other places, you know, it has a time span that goes back to the iron age and um, ends up, you know, terminating in Hiroshima and uh, it gets into, you know, so many other areas. Um, because that's what I want to do, like take something that is confined to domesticity or issues and then see how big it can be. How big can it get? How far afield can it go um, before it really starts to break and break down? How much can it become just not a, not a realist novel, even though it kind of wears that skin to begin with? I feel like it's, it's a masquerading novel. I feel like it's masquerading to, to people who would read, you know, your contemporary novel. But then I feel like it's got this massive like sinkhole within it. Like I feel like it's a book that you can plunge into. And it I, I can tell you that it didn't go anywhere that I thought it would when I picked it up because I picked it up apropos of nothing. And yeah, it just went places that I didn't think it would go. Went for a long walk in Sydney as well, which I was very familiar with. But um yeah, it's just it's um I have to congratulate you because it's it's a it's a fantastic piece of work. And um, yeah, I really hope people go out and, and read it. But I also want to ask you what you're up to next. Oh, thanks. I'm, I'm really glad um, to hear all that. I, I guess I just should add also, like, I'm glad to hear that you, it didn't go anywhere you expected because I wanted to write a book kind of like the books that I like getting for Splice, right? Like the kind of things that... Um, are willing to risk not satisfying people's expectations. And, you know, because the book was shortlisted for the Miles Franklin, it ended up going to a lot of readers who probably wouldn't have picked it up otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the ones that I've heard from are just very affronted that their expectations are not met. Like, I've had a lot of angry mail coming to me. <laughs> <laughs> like... You know, you should have just kept it to the couple. You should have just kept it to, you know, it should have been one person's story, like all that. And I just think, yeah, that's everything I didn't want to do with this book is like <laughs> what you wanted me to do with it. And you don't like having your expectations not met. So, okay, fine. Um, but if you're willing to like not have your expectations met, then I think it's probably a book for you. I hope, I hope that's how it felt for you as well. Like, yeah, it's okay to have your expectations met. It's okay if you get something else instead, you know, That's right. roll with it. <laughs> um, but what I'm working on now is um, really different. Uh, so I guess I'm working on something that would be, if it, if it ends up published, um, there's never a guarantee, but it would probably land in historical fiction again, but like it would end in historical fiction the way that Mason and Dixon is historical fiction. So it's about John Russell. Um, and his uh, involvement with the Impressionists and post-Impressionists in France. Um, so he, yeah, he was a guy from Sydney who uh, went to France at the end of the 18th century, uh, sorry, 19th century, um, with Tom Roberts, who would eventually come back to Australia and become sort of Australia's national painter, whereas um, Russell stayed in France and befriended Vincent van Gogh and Paul Gauguin and uh, uh, Cezanne and uh, Rodin and kind of got really involved in A, uh, those painters' lives, B, Van Gogh's troubles, um, his 
letters to Van Gogh are really very, very intimate and, um, you know, really personal and confronting. And, um, and then the Dreyfus affair. And so it's about, it's, uh, yeah, it's about him and it's about his relationship with Roberts through Gauguin and Van Gogh and, and sort of how they all interacted. I guess kind of in a way that Mason and Dixon is ultimately about a friendship or a strained relationship or an offbeat relationship between two guys. Yeah, it's kind of in that in that vein and also in a kind of hyperbolic style. It's not a realist um, take on this situation at all. Um, and I guess what interests me is about Russell is that the art that we have of Russell, which is not very much, is not very good. He's not particularly well known because he didn't produce a real masterpiece but the reason he didn't do that is because he he apparently like he burnt a lot of his art um and there were pieces that he didn't consider to be finished until they were destroyed so it like that was the culmination of what he was trying to do so yes it's about it's about kind of that uh, an artistic mindset that sees destruction as part of the creative process and how that kind of inflects these friendships between these guys who are all um, embarked on a on a creative process that has very destructive elements. Sounds amazing. Can't wait to read it. Thanks. It's a few years away yet, though, I think. <laughs> Are you ready to get onto your gateway books? What were some of the books that got you into the world of literature? Um, my gateway books, look, I wasn't a huge reader as a kid. And as I said, as a writer, like I read a lot of sci-fi fantasy. So, you know, for someone who didn't like, read much as a kid I I was really indebted to I read a lot of comics to be honest like I was way into you know Spider-Man and X-Men and lots of Marvel stuff but anyway ended up coming to The Sandman by Neil Gaiman which is just an incredible series of comics and incredibly literary have you read it I haven't read it no you haven't read the same okay so you know, Shakespeare is like literally a character. The Greek gods and the Norse gods are like characters. Milton's Satan is a character. Um, Dante is in there. Chaucer is in there. G.K. Chesterton. Like, it, it. I'd had no, I'd had no exposure to a world of literature when I read that. I was like, I was like 19, 18 or 19, and I, I kind of didn't know literature at all until I read the sermon, and so it pointed me in like this direction that there was like there was this world out there that it was kind of referring to but I didn't quite know why or how and um so I, I was really into that and then but I also knew like Gaiman I, like I followed Neil Gaiman for a long time and he used to have this line whenever he went to events and I went to one of his events once and he just said oh I'm no you know I'm nobody I'm just a storyteller I'm just a man who tells stories and I just thought wow that's such bullshit like what I responded to in his, in what he was doing, wasn't the story he was telling, like it was something else, you know, I felt like he was short selling himself in this twee way and that there was this other almost unknowable dimension to what he was doing that really spoke to me. And I, I, you know, I really responded badly to that and kind of fell, fell away from, from that world. But I I didn't like the the sci-fi world, but I didn't really know what it was that, that had grabbed me or what would grab me and so I just had a list of books that most like partly drawn from him that that sounded interesting and the one that that I picked up and then realized aha this is this is the kind of thing that speaks to me this is like this is literature beyond the canon and it's doing things that I that that just seemed magical 
and inexplicable was Dahlgren by Samuel R. Delaney, mm. which I think I went to on his recommendation. And it's, it's, I, I still can't account for that book. Like, I still don't know half of what's going on in there other than the premise. And I think it's, you know, it, it, it's, it's such a feat of language and, and concept and just kind of opacity that language is so like hyper precise but the meaning is so opaque and yet it's gripping like from start to finish you know it's hundreds of pages and it just I read it in like a single sitting not knowing what I was doing just knowing that that was magic and I and I hunted around for books like Dahlgren after that and it took me about a year but this I guess would be the second real gateway after that was Lanark by Alistair Gray and you know, it's, I guess, conceivably, it's a science fiction novel too. Like half of it is about people who get a disease that kind of turns them into dragons, which is like, you know, crazy. But it's formally and structurally and stylistically just, I don't know. I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. I think that's what I like about it. I guess I would say that it tells two stories that are intercut and never really overlap except in very suggestive ways. And if you pick up on the suggestions, you get a completely different book, like a third a third storyline to it. And it, it really showed me that, wow, if you, if you write in a way that seems, you know, that writers could write in ways that seem obscure or on the other hand, over-determined, and that wasn't a flaw, that was a way to create something else that isn't on the page, you know? And I think that's kind of what, what Delaney's getting at in Dahlgren as well. So those two together um, would be the two that really gave me an ideal of, of style and structure as a, aside from story that I am constantly searching for, I think. Brilliant, okay. What great gateway books, that's amazing. <laughs> so, um, what are you currently reading and what books uh, are you looking forward to at the moment? Well, uh, well this year I, can't, I, I, I wanted to fill in some blind spots in my reading this year, actually. So I'm slowly throughout the year reading um, all of Shakespeare and the Russians. Do you know I'd only read Crime and Punishment among like all the Russian classics? Yeah. And that was 20 years ago. And I thought, wow, like I don't know anything about Russian literature, particularly at this point in in political history it seems pretty important <laughs> like so I'm going back through those guys as well but the ones that I'm really looking forward to there, there are only a few new books I'm really looking forward to this year but um yeah I'll run you through them you've already spoken to Emily Hall and the long cut is waiting for me at home and it's the first thing I'm going to get to as soon as I get as soon as I get home I'm really just so looking forward to it based on what I've read it seems incredible um, and Cormac McCarthy is one of my favourite authors, so I'm a bit dubious about what they're doing with two books back-to-back at the end of the year with him, but I will, I will get them and I will read them, like there's no question about that. Yeah. And then the others that I'm looking forward to, Mark Haber's um, St Sebastian's Abyss. I, I read his book Reinhardt's Garden, Reinhardt's Garden like three or four years ago and just loved it. Like It's hilarious and wild and... Um, so I'm really looking forward to his follow-up. And then there's, um, there's an English writer called Paul Stanbridge, who a few years ago, he, his debut was called, it's called Forbidden Line. 
And it's it's like a proper maximalist English novel. It's like hundreds of pages about this guy who's basically reenacting the travels of Don Quixote in modern day Essex. And it's it's crazy and funny and just, you know, experimental with its form. And so he's got a, uh, a new book coming out this year called My Mind to Me, A Kingdom Is by Galley Beggar Press. I have no idea what it's about, but he's the kind of writer who just takes crazy risks in that first book. I'll read whatever he publishes after that. Um, and then there's a there's a Canadian writer who lives in Edinburgh called Camilla Grudova, and she uh, she might be familiar to some people. Her first story collection was published by Fitzcarraldo. It's called The Children's Alphabet. Uh, no, sorry, uh, The Doll's Alphabet, maybe something like that. Um, she is. I don't know if you've read her, but you know how like the adjective Kafka esque gets like bandied around. Uh, you know, for writers who do anything a little bit weird, just anything weird. No, like this is the closest English language fiction I've ever found to Franz Kafka. Like genuinely, she is cut so close to the Kafka-esque ideal. It's uncanny and unsettling. Um, and that's in the doll's alphabet. Um, she has a new book coming out called Children of Paradise. So again, I know nothing about it, but I will read whatever she writes. And then there's one more that I read recently that is like anyone who likes Hang Him When He Is Not There should pick up this book. And some people will know it already because it was published a few years ago. It's by a guy named Edmund Caldwell, who was, he, he, he died some years ago. He was um, originally like one of the bloggers who I got into maybe in the mid 2000s. And he wrote a novel called Human Wishes Enemy combatant with a slash between human wishes slash enemy combatant um which is as crazily like the 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 experimentation of it is like is like hanging when he is not there and that book has just been republished by a, a press i've never heard of in the uk um called grand iota i don't know anything about them but i do know that that work is a work of genius of real like singular vision, very uncompromising. I think anyone who 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 liked Hang Him or any indeed anyone who has read Babel as well by Gabriel Blackwell should be reading um, Human Wishes Enemy Competent. So you can get it now. It's been out of print for a long time. And I reread it recently. And it's just even 10 years on, I think, since it was originally published, it's it feels so fresh and original. I love it. We'll take a quick break here on Beyond the Zero. We're speaking with Daniel Davis Wood. This episode is brought to you by the Mass Foundation. If you found in possession of the unauthorized biography of Ezra Mass by Daniel James, we know who you are. We are coming for you. We're back on Beyond Zero. It's time for Daniel's Top 10. My top 10 is actually pretty straightforward. Uh, there's nothing from out of left field like there was with Mark De Silva, which I thought was an amazing top 10. But I'm going to go for a lot of obvious ones. But um, all right, in no particular order, 
except for the last two, but I'll go through the, the others first. So um, The Plains by Gerald Manane. I really hummed and hard on which Manane to pick. And there are others that I like better than The Plains. But at the end of the day, there's something so appealing about the innocence of The Plains. It was like Manane coming into what he actually is as a writer. I think for the first time, like he, you know, he's, 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 he, he's kind of fulfilling what he would later idealize in this book. And uh, I like, I just like the simplicity of it and the purity of it and just the, the very quiet beauty of it and the abstraction, just everything. It, it, he does it with a very light touch here in a way that he doesn't really do later on. And I think I value that probably um, I value that I, I like it kind of intuitively rather than intellectually. I like his other works intellectually, but the planes just speaks to me on a, on a different level. Um, as does uh, Life and Times of Michael Kay by J.M. Kutzia, which is was kind of strange for me. I thought I would end up going for Waiting for the Barbarians, but again, there's like a the, the straightforwardness and the simplicity of Life and Times of Michael Kay and the abstraction and the weirdness of it just in a way I can't quite explain, just stick to me and, and really resonate. Um, in, you know, and his other works don't, don't quite have that quality. It's not really something I can pinpoint other than to say, oh, yeah, that feels different to the rest. And then I would say Voss by Patrick White. I, again, I don't know. I like the Tree of Man better sometimes, and sometimes I like the Vivisector better, and sometimes I like, you know, Fringe of Leaves better. But at the end of the day, I keep coming back to Voss and the way it makes an epic of somebody who is just really putting one foot in front of another and thinking about a woman uh, is, is kind of unaccountably magical. Um, and the language, his use of language and his use of like his syntax is so strange and askew, like the way he, he gets rid of pronouns and he starts sentences with and even though they're not in the middle of anything it just it's weird and it's it it the first time i read it it just it jolted me into just a different way of thinking about language and what it could do and it, and it still does it's evergreen then i would among all the mccarthy books i have to choose blood meridian and intellectually again i think oh sutri is better which is something that i think mccarthy fans go back and forth on a lot like is sutri better than blood meridian or vice versa but blood meridian is the one for me i think it's where mccarthy's vision really comes into its own and the language is just so extraordinary even when it becomes so extraordinary that it becomes comical or parodic of itself, it is still extraordinary. And, you know, it's just unstoppable. And I, and I love that about him. And I, I can't really deny what an influence he's been on me. And then similarly, I would say William Faulkner, I chose Absalom, Absalom. Uh, I guess McCarthy owes a lot to Faulkner in this respect, but Faulkner, so I, I kind of value Faulkner as the trailblazer for what, for what became Blood Meridian in a way. But just that, that, that there's something in there that I, that I tried to pick up in, in my work too, which is that like if you're addressing a subject of some discomfort or grotesquery, and particularly if it's historical, so, you know, it can't talk back to you. Like 
it's hard to search for a language that is adequate to addressing that subject as fully as it deserves to be. And language is always going to fail. Like you're never going to get to that level of adequacy. And I think Faulkner really, really kind of illustrates that in Absalom, Absalom. But he also illustrates that just the search, like just the, the search for language, the desire, like trying to find the right words is as important as whatever you do find. Even if what you find is not adequate, the search is like its own kind of aesthetic endeavor and ethical endeavor. And I really just, that idea kind of, that's partly what gets me writing. And I, yeah, I think for him to come to that, I don't know, with the thoroughness that he does and the vision that he does is just extraordinary. Um, and then at the opposite end of that, like where the language is not so rich, Melanchthon by Gertrude Stein. I mean, she just creates such an amazing tapestry of sound through the most mundane words repeated to just an extraordinary degree. And I think it goes along with probably William Gass's essays on Melanchthon. I mean, they're not in my top 10, but I can't read Melanchthon without reading it the way Gass read it in those essays. You know, they're, they're so conjoined at the moment for me. And then I would say I, uh, Edward P. Jones's The Known World, particularly because Jones does this one of the strangest things I've seen a novelist do and I don't I don't think anyone who's tried to copy him has done it quite as well but he creates like a narrator who can see all points in time kind of simultaneously so when the narrator is like focusing on one character and kind of telling you what they're doing he's also like will glance aside and say you know this character is standing three feet from where someone would drop dead later and then he will go into that person's like backstory and then come back to the present. And the backstory has no bearing on, you know, it's like a, it's like an omniscient narrator who kind of gets caught up in its own omniscience. It's like he, he overworks the idea of the omniscient narrator in a way that becomes kind of surreal and bends time in strange ways. Um, and then I guess the most recent book on the list would be Solar Bones by Mike McCormack, which I think is probably the best novel published so far this century. Um, a very simple story about a guy who is basically dead and it's his ghost narrating kind of the setup of his life. It's not exceptional in any way with the subject that it takes up, but it does have sort of the one sentence thing that Ducks Newburyport ended up maximising. Uh, it has that in a smaller form, but it also has just incredible... Um, it, an incredible scheme of repetition of lines and imagery and kind of ideas of how time is structured, I guess, all throughout the novel from, it begins with a heartbeat as a, as a way of structuring time, it goes all the way up to like planetary orbiting as a way of structuring time and then back down and um, kind of, yeah, collapses them all into one in, in, in ways that I think are just beautiful and it has one of the most, I won't say which, but one of the most perfect pages, single pages of prose I think I've ever read towards the end. I just, it just really hits me in the heart. So that's eight. And then the last two books, those eight are in no particular order, but the last two books are equal number ones for me. And they're both by the same writer and they're both the really obvious choices, but it's Moby Dick and Bartleby the Scrivener by 
Herman Melville. And the reason I put them in equal number one place is because I don't think you can have those two books separately. I really actually think they're two versions of the same book um, in the sense that, in the sense that like they are, they are both by narrators who are trying to address, who are like obsessively trying to address something that is inscrutable or ineffable. And it's like the, 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 like this effort, this obsessive effort to like account for something that cannot be accounted for and to sort of inexplicably keep going and keep going as if you can ever get there when clearly you can't even though like the writing of the account feels like an accounting, but it really isn't because they're finally always kind of detached from this object of obsession. I think that is just an amazing thing for a writer to write about to begin with. And then the fact that Melville did it in a really maximalist way and then in a minimalist way, kind of back to back is, is just, you know, makes me admire him all the more. I think particularly like Moby Dick is obviously about obsession you know, it takes the two-pronged approach, like Ahab is obsessed with this one particular whale and Ishmael is obsessed with, like, all whales in general, like, as a species, and they both still can't fully comprehend the thing or can't master the thing that they're trying to get at. That's obvious, but in Bartleby less so, and I think because, like, there's been a bit of a modernist um, tendency to read Bartleby with an eye towards Bartleby, like with his renunciation, his refusal, I would prefer not to, and so on. And, you know, I think even you get it in Blanchot and guys like that where Bartleby's the focus, but Bartleby's never the focus for me. It's the narrator of Bartleby who's always the focus, I think. And, you know, who talks of himself at the beginning as like a dead guy, like I am a dead person walking is how he puts it. And then he encounters this inscrutable, obstructive thing in this person and it's just he can't penetrate the mystery of Bartleby and that obsession that you know need to keep trying to penetrate even when he can't generates this beautiful book like there's this great flourishing of creativity in this dead person's life because Bartleby is the white whale there Bartleby's the inscrutable thing and yeah I think I, I guess yeah that's why I see them as, as like the same book told twice at two different scales and, and and they have to be number one together amazing that is an outstanding list i one of the ones i want to highlight as well is mike mcconnell solar bones i think that's a such a great novel i really love that book so yeah amazing to hear it in your top 10 Oh, okay. I'm, I'm glad you read it. I, I wasn't going to say it, but I'll say it now. When he sits down in the cafe and he orders a sandwich at the end, this is the page I'm talking about. Like, that is the closest I've ever come to tears, like reading a piece of prose, I think. It's just, it is like, I don't know, it is like very secular prose that to me approaches something almost divine in the way he just renders that one, I think one paragraph or two paragraphs of just a guy wanting a sandwich and it's just incredible it seems ridiculous to summarize it like that it's laughable but the way he does it on the page is amazing all right well we should probably wrap it up but before we do do you want to tell us where we can go and get your books and go and find all splice books yes the splice website is this is splice.co.uk it does ship internationally um 
you can find me at danieldaviswood.com and you can find my books. Uh, probably the best place in Australia is Booktopia. Booktopia also uh, owns my, my publisher, which is Brio Books. So um, you can buy through Booktopia and it's totally fine. Um, don't buy through Amazon. Daniel, it has been such a pleasure speaking with you and I am looking forward to getting over to Scotland and visiting you in person again. But um, thanks so much for talking to me tonight. Thank you, Ben, likewise. And you are always welcome to come over and uh, I'll take you hiking somewhere. Thanks once again to Daniel Davis Wood. Check out the show notes for all the details. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Beyond Zero Pod, and you can email us at beyondthezeropod at gmail.com. We'll be back with your next episode next week.